Welcome to episode 42 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, I interview retired agent Doug Hess, who served with the FBI for nearly 21 years. Doug was assigned for a short time to a satellite office out of the Tampa division, but spent most of his career in the Philadelphia division. As a licensed pilot, Doug was initially assigned to the surveillance squad, known as Special Operations Group, or SOG. Later, he returned to working his own cases on a squad handling major theft and interstate transportation of stolen property crimes. Doug is interviewed about his investigation of a scheme conducted to defraud 150 coin dealers and collectors known as numismatist of $1 million in gold coins. During the investigation, Doug discovered a second scheme involving lead-filled bars of silver that could have been potentially more damaging to the precious metals industry. For his efforts in these matters, Doug received the Sol Kaplan Award from the Professional Numismatist Guild. Doug was especially proud of this award because he is a collector himself, and he does share with us his love of collecting antiques and FBI G-Men collectible memorabilia. As a matter of fact, several years ago, he and another retired agent, Joe McQuillan shared their love of collecting G-Men memorabilia with me, and we created a calendar to give away to friends and family. With their permission, I've updated that calendar. And for those of you who are already signed up for my newsletter, you received a PDF file for that calendar earlier this week. You can use that 26-page calendar as is, or you can print out as many copies as you would like. If you're not already a member of the FBI Retired True Crime Crime Fiction Newsletter, you can sign up for that and receive a PDF file of the 2017 FBI G-Men Collectible Calendar by simply signing up on my website. There is a place on the homepage in the sidebar and on the podcast page in the sidebar for you to do so. And of course, I have one last thing I must mention, and that's Pay to Play, my crime novel about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. For those of you who have been reading and reviewing the novel, I want to say thank you. Now here's the show. Hi, everyone. I want to welcome my guest, Doug Hess. Hi, Doug. Hi, Jerry. I am really fascinated with this uh, case that you're going to talk about because we actually used it as one of our, you know, famous Philadelphia Division FBI cases when the FBI celebrated their 100th anniversary back in 2008. So it's going to be really interesting to, to talk about that. But before we get into the case, I really want uh, everyone to know a little bit about you. So could you tell us when you joined the FBI and why you decided that you wanted to be a special agent? Well, I'd come out of the Air Force in 1978, and I was looking for another career path. And my dad had met a couple FBI agents and mentioned to them that I was looking for another career, and they 
got an application form back when you actually filled out a physical paper application. I think today you do everything online. And I uh, filled it out, and uh, I was academically qualified. I had gone to college, and I had some military experience. Uh, that made me eligible for the panel interview. I uh, had the panel interview before three agents in the Philadelphia office, and I did okay with that. And then I was awarded the uh, physical exam. I passed the physical exam and, and got my uh, got my acceptance letter shortly thereafter and entered the Bureau in uh, November of 1981. I went to the FBI Academy, 16 weeks, and uh, graduated from the FBI Academy and uh, came back to the Philadelphia office. Now, did you ever work any other division? Yes. I worked in Philadelphia for about six months on the applicant squad, which is a good place to start because it teaches you how to do interviews with people. And then I got transferred down to Tampa, Florida. I was in a small office, a four-man office in Lakeland, Florida, just outside Tampa. And uh, I worked with four very experienced agents who took me under their wing and uh, taught me a lot. It really helped me and uh, helped me get off to a good start. And I was there for two years, worked a lot of good cases. And then the aviation coordinator from Philadelphia called me up and asked me if I wanted to come back to Philadelphia to fly for the Bureau as I had my pilot's license. And I was glad to come home. I said yes. And uh, sometime later, I got a letter uh, transferring me back to Philadelphia to fly for the Bureau on the surveillance squad. Now, could you tell us a little bit about that assignment you you know you say you're flying for the the bureau you're not uh, transporting people or or as a travel pilot uh, some some transportation um some surveillances um a lot of different things we had a couple of airplanes up at the northeast airport um at one point our san juan fbi office needed two pilots and an airplane and uh another pilot and myself, the two of us flew the FBI plane from Philadelphia all the way to San Juan, Puerto Rico. It was quite an adventure. I had to stop and refuel about four times on the way. And we worked down there for about a month working on the Monson Terrorist, uh, terrorist uh, Organization and then flew all the way back from Puerto Rico all the way back to Philadelphia. It was quite a, an adventure. Um, that was when I was on the what we called the Special Operations Group, SOG. We did a lot of surveillance, break-ins, wiretapping, things like that. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a great five years. I worked there for five years, and then I got transferred back into the Philadelphia office where I started working cases again. You know, this is fascinating because, Doug, we have known each other for a very long time. And, I, you know, we would consider each other to be very good friends. Sure. I don't, I don't think I ever knew that you flew for the Bureau. Yeah, I was on the uh, SOG for five years and uh, worked a lot of good cases. In fact, they used the SOG for some of the biggest cases in the office. And uh, we had four pilots on the squad and about oh, 12 to 15 agents uh, that would work in their cars. And we did a lot of surveillance, arrests, uh, a lot of investigations. And uh, we had an off-site. Uh, we'd go to a place, we called it the cave uh, no one knew where it was. Not even the agents in the office knew where we were located. And we worked out of there under a, a fictitious uh, company name, We'd go there every morning, and then from there we would get our assignments and, and, and move on from there. And, yeah, I knew uh, it was you a great were on, experience. 
Yeah, I knew you were on uh, SOG, but I and I probably I guess I probably did know at the time, but I had have definitely uh, had definitely forgotten that uh, you were a pilot. So uh, that's a very cool uh, position or assignment in the FBI. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It, it was it was a great experience. I'm, I'm, I feel privileged to uh, have done it. All right. So when you left SOG and you came into the office, what what squad were you on? I got transferred onto Squad Four. It uh, turned out to be a great squad. They did a lot of great work. Uh, major theft, um, carjackings. Uh, uh, at the time, they were doing some art theft cases and. Uh, just a lot of really good work, uh, doing a lot of uh, interstate transportation, stolen property cases, truck, you know, trucking thefts, and uh, and uh, really uh, the squad was doing a lot of a lot of good work. And so that's where you were when you began this case involving the uh, gold coins and the uh, silver bars. This case was initially assigned to another agent who did a great job getting it started, but then it sort of floundered for a while because there wasn't any real hard evidence. Um, there was no smoking gun, and it was a very confusing case, um, but uh, uh, the agent that was assigned the case uh, got injured and was out of commission for about six weeks, so they reassigned it to me, and I took an interest in it, and uh, I collected coins when I was a kid. And uh, I was kind of interested in the case, and I found a few things that uh, sent up red flags to me to indicate to me that there was an actual crime. And so I uh, took the case and ran with it. Well, take us from the very beginning, even before the FBI got involved in the investigation. Who was involved and what did they do that was suspicious? Around January of 1989, two coin dealers... Uh, doing business as Channel Trading uh, Company in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, claimed that an individual came into their coin shop and hired them to purchase a million dollars worth of rare coins and gold coins for some of his investors. They wrote up a contract and they did up a deal and um, they claimed that this mystery man gave them two Swiss checks totaling a million dollars which they later deposited into their fairly new checking account through the drive-in window. And then they flew to a large coin show in Orlando, Florida, where they went around the show and purchased about a million dollars in coins from about 150 coin dealers. All right, so you said they operate this company called Channel Trading Company. Exactly what is that, what was that, and uh, what did they do? Well, they're coin dealers. They deal in coins and precious metals. Um, and they buy and sell coins and precious metals, gold bars, silver bars, anything of value. In fact, just about anything of value. Uh, in fact, uh, prior to this case, George had gotten in trouble for receiving uh, George Washington's leather wallet, which had been stolen, and uh, George got caught with it. The police confiscated it and took it back. Uh, that was another Stolen thing. Stolen from I, where? Uh, it's some museum. It was a museum somewhere, I believe, in New York. I can't recall exactly. Um, but uh, George got caught with the wallet, and, and they just they just confiscated the wallet. But when I found that out, I there was one more 
one more piece of the puzzle to make me think that George is kind of a wheeler dealer and involved in, in stolen property, stolen merchandise. But they had this uh, coin business in uh, Langhorn, Pennsylvania, and they were legitimate coin dealers as well. And then... Uh, you, you talked know, about them going to some coin show in, in Florida. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, every year there's a uh, called the Fun Show, the Florida United Numismatic Coin Show. They have it in different cities. That particular year, in 1989, they had it in Orlando, Florida. And Funkhauser and Schwartz flew to Orlando because there are hundreds and hundreds of dealers at the, at the coin show. And that's where they purchased the coins. They purchased about 50% in gold bullion coins, which are coins that are valuable because strictly because of their gold content. And about 50% of the coins were actually numismatic coins, coins that are valuable because of their the date or their rarity of the coin and the condition. Schwartz was more into the numismatic coins, and George Funkhauser was more into the gold bullion coins. That was something else that piqued our interest a little bit. The types of coins that were actually taken, were actually purchased, kind of fit the type of business that they were in personally, uh, even though they claimed that they had purchased the coins for another investor. They actually bought the kind of coins that they would be mostly interested in themselves. Yeah, that that is one of those little clues, one of those things that make yeah. you say, hmm. Right, right. When they came back, uh, all of their checks bounced because the Swiss checks that they deposited into their new checking account were counterfeit. And they claimed they would have just given the coins back to the rightful owners, but they claimed that when they got back to the Philadelphia airport and walked to their car, they got robbed by two men with ski masks. And what really happened was they had two associates, a wife and a girlfriend, come to the airport, take the coins, take them back home, and then the two subjects, George Funkhauser and Brian Schwartz, called the police, dialed 911, handcuffed themselves together and to the back of the car, and claimed that they were robbed at gunpoint. It, it sounds like then this was like premeditated. Jerry, that's exactly right. Uh, they knew all along that they'd be able to keep the coins because they claimed that they had been robbed of the coins. And when the police arrived, brought them back to the police station and interviewed them, they, they really didn't believe them. And their demeanor and their attitude about the whole case just made the police feel like they were, they were making up a, making up a story. And we got involved because it involved in an interstate aspect, uh, the depositing of bad checks into a bank and the transportation from Orlando, Florida, back to Philadelphia. And that's how we got involved. Well, why didn't they think that I, I, I'm kind of confused because, you know, even if the coins were stolen, they didn't have to give them back. Didn't they realize that they still could be charged criminally with giving the fake checks in exchange for the coins? They were claiming that they believed the two Swiss checks that this mysterious man named Michael Garrett gave them. They say they believed that those checks were good, and so they believed that the checks they wrote out to purchase the coins were good, so they had no criminal intent, and that's their story. And uh, and like I said, they were they said that they would return the coins to the rightful owners, but lo and behold, when they got back to the Philadelphia airport, they got robbed. Mm. And the first thing I noticed when I got the case 
was the thing that really sent me, gave me the impression that it was a, a scam, was that I noticed out of the 150 coin dealers that they bought from, they didn't buy from any of their friends. I mean, these guys are coin dealers for years, very well known in the industry, and they didn't purchase from any of their friends, and they didn't purchase from anybody local. And so, if you, in fact, some of their associates and friends who were coin dealers came up to them at the show and said, hey, I hear you're buying a lot of coins. How come you're not buying anything from me? And they avoided buying from their friends and associates because they knew they'd be you know, cheating them and cheating them out of the money. So that was the first thing that sent up a red flag. And uh, and then when I started interviewing people, they didn't seem very cooperative. Um, you know, it was like pulling teeth when I started interviewing the two subjects and the wife and the girlfriend and a couple of associates. I uh, just just got a bad feeling. And, and we, so we knew it was a scam from the start, but it's tough to prove because we had to prove a negative. I had to prove that something didn't happen. I had to prove that they did not get robbed. And that's pretty tough to do. Yeah, I guess if that were to happen now, it would be a little easier because there's cameras everywhere. But back then, in uh, you know the late 1980s, you know you didn't have that type of uh, video surveillance in you know the airport parking lot. That's correct. We had no uh, we had no surveillance uh, photography at all to help us. Uh, just the uh, photographs that the police took when they got to the airport. And uh, I also thought it was unusual that this Michael Garrett would set up a robbery like that. I mean, how would he know when they were coming back from the show? How would he know where they parked? You know, that sort of thing. It just When I put it all together, it just didn't make sense. So what they were saying was the same person that had given them or allegedly given them these two fake Swiss bank checks was the same person who had orchestrated them being robbed when they returned. That's correct. That's correct. And, of course, that person doesn't exist. But Yes, that's correct. All right. So you're doing your interviews, you're talking to different people, and you're coming up with the same feeling that this is fake, this is bogus. Correct. And then I also found out that George Funkhauser had purchased and created a paintball business up in New Milford, Pennsylvania, and invested close to a million dollars in the paintball business and it didn't really it was not successful uh, he spent a lot of money building bunks and cabins and uniforms and equipment and uh, it just didn't fly and I think that may have been a motive also so that kind of piqued our interest as well that he had a strong motive because he had just lost a lot of money in the paintball business I, I guess the only way that you can prove that this is you know, this is all a lie, is to find someone who can tell you that <laughs> what really happened. You got the girlfriends, you got the wives. Were they the ones who came forward and, and uh, you know, told you what really happened? It was not the girlfriends or the wives, uh, but uh, one name kept popping up, the name Kurt Pfeffer. And um, it just seemed like his name kept popping up. And every time I asked about him, the other people that were involved acted like they didn't want me to talk to him. So finally, um, another agent in the office and I drove down to Cambridge, Maryland. We found Kurt Pfeffer. He was living in Cambridge, Maryland with his parents. And we knocked on his door. He opened the door and he looked at me and I told him I was with the FBI and he said, I've been waiting for two years for you to show up at my door. 
And I knew at that point he was probably going to be a pretty good source of information. So we came into his house. His parents were there. He was in his young, early 30s. A nice guy, nice, nice guy, not a, not a, not a violent person. And uh, he said, do you mind if my mother sits in on the interview? And at first I thought no, but then I thought, you know, it's going to be a little harder for him to lie in front of his mother than it would be in front of the FBI. So I said, yeah, sure. And sure enough, Kurt and uh, another agent in the office, myself and his mother sat down and he told us the truth. Basically, what happened was the night that George and Brian came back from the coin show, after the wife and girlfriend took the coins back home, George called Kurt and said, I want you to meet me at the shop and do a melt. And they met at this shop that they had, and George poured bags of gold coins into the smelting machine and melted them down into gold bars. So who is Kurt? He's, he, he, he worked for George and Brian at Channel Trading? Yeah, he was kind of a friend and an associate, kind of worked for George, uh, not officially, but just did odd jobs for George Funkhauser. And uh, there was rumor that they were all going to try to do some treasure hunting, and Kurt was going to drive the boat when they tried to go out into the ocean and do treasure hunting because Kurt lived on a on the uh, bay down in Maryland and knew a lot about boats. And Kurt was just a young guy, very impressionable, and he believed in George, and uh, whatever George wanted him to do, he would do. And so they melted the coins down in bars that evening. And uh, and then, unbeknownst to us, Kurt proceeded to tell us about the silver bar scam, where George and some other folks were acquiring Engelhard silver bars. They weigh about 500 ounces, and they were hollowing, hollowing them out and filling them with lead and then reselling them. And Kurt knew about that scam, and that developed into a whole nother, whole nother case. Oh, wow. When we came back to Kurt's residence in Cambridge, Maryland, I brought a recording device with me. By this time, Funkhauser and Schwartz had been indicted, so we were not legally permitted to contact them. But I put a recording device on Kurt Pfeffer's home phone, and fortunately for us, when George found out that we had talked to Kurt, George Funkhauser called Kurt. We're not allowed to contact Funkhauser, but he is allowed to contact us. And fortunately, he called Kurt. They talked about the night they melted the coins down, and now we had it on tape. And uh, we played that tape during Funkhauser's bail hearing. Shortly after Mr. Pfeffer decided to cooperate with the FBI, he came out of his house one day and found a chalk drawing of a body, a silhouette of a body with a tire track going across the body in his driveway. And we assumed that that was a threat made by probably George Funkhauser. We don't know for sure, uh, but you know we were offended by it, and, and of course the judge was very offended by it. And, and I- so, I'm sure that added a little bit more time to his sentence too. It probably did. It uh, it it, uh, it it caused Mr. Funkhauser not to be, you know, a sympathetic uh, defendant. That's for sure. When he when he when he tried to intimidate a witness, yes, that's correct. Uh, he had hired uh, a Charles Peruto as his attorney, the father, and uh, excellent. A very attorney. famous, yeah, a yes. very famous attorney <laughs> yeah. in the Philadelphia yeah. area. Yes. And uh, by this time, the IRS had come on board with me and helped me out and did a great job. We worked well, very well together. 
with the tape of them now talking about melting the coins down, it was now time for George to uh, to make a plea and plead guilty. And uh, and Let me after ask you a he... question, because you're, sure. you're you were you you had just mentioned that you actually had indicted uh, George and Brian prior to you learning what happened to the coins from Kurt. So what type of evidence did you have to uh, to to get that indictment? I'm trying to recall I had sent some of the contract paperwork down to the FBI lab and disproved some of the things that they said about the handwriting samples on the contract and um some of the things that they had said to some of the dealers. Um I can't recall exactly, it's been almost 20 years, uh, exactly what all of our evidence was at the time, but we did have enough uh, for an indictment before we actually got the taped interview and the taped conversation between Kurt and, and George Funkhauser. All right, so those would have been on just the the fraudulent contract, fraudulent uh, bank checks. You would have been able to indict them just based on that alone. Yes, and... From what I recall, I believe we had some information about them selling some of the coins to some other individuals. Um, not, still not a smoking gun, but enough enough to get our foot in the door and to get an indictment. Were you worried, or, or, or was the AUSA, the, United, the assistant United States attorney that you were working with, worried that if this went to trial that you didn't have enough, uh, that there would be a chance that you may lose? Yes, you're you're exactly right. No, that was an issue, and uh, the U.S. attorney was Rob Reed. He did a great job, uh, but he and I we were we were all a little worried that uh, if it went to trial, the case would be confusing enough, and that Funkhauser would be you know a sympathetic subject to a point because he was kind of a funny guy, and. Um, we were we were a little worried about going to trial, and uh, but we came up with the uh, taped evidence. Uh, then that was pretty much the smoking gun. And at that point, Rob Reed uh, took the ball and ran with it, and it uh, it all came to, it all came together. Now, as far as forfeiture, were you able to find any of these coins, or are any of the hollowed out silver bars that you mentioned? We found several of the hollowed-out silver bars, took them to a smelter. He melted them down, and the value of the silver remaining in the bars was returned to some of the victims. Uh, we don't know exactly how many silver bars they counterfeited. We don't think they did that many because it was a fairly tedious process. They spent about $40,000 on equipment uh, in order to do it. They had a, a hot lead injector and a, a bandsaw and a couple other uh, couple other items you know, a couple other tools that they had purchased in order to uh, counterfeit these bars. And um, we end up, ended up taking uh, the bars to the non-destructive test lab at the Navy base, and they were able to x-ray them, and we saw the dark matter inside the bars, and then they, they cut them for us and, uh, and you know, determined that they were filled with lead. Do you recall what the value of the bars would have been if they were solid silver and what they were with the lead uh, injected inside. Yes, I remember specifically at the time, silver was was worth about $5 per ounce. Uh, 
Uh, I think today it's about $17 an ounce, I believe. But anyway, back then it was $5 an ounce. The silver bars were exactly 100 ounces each. So if they were all silver, they were worth about $500. And they were taking out about half the silver content out of the bars and reselling them. So they were making about $250 profit on each bar that they counterfeited. But again, they would have had to sell a lot of those in order to recoup the money that they spent just in setting up the equipment to do this. (laughs) That's correct. And we know that they intended to do that, obviously. But we thwarted their efforts, and uh, I think by the time we caught on to their scheme, they had only counterfeited maybe 50 bars or so. But, yeah, they, they could have done thousands of bars over years and years. It would have created havoc in the uh, precious metals industry. It was a good thing we stopped them when we did. Because a lot of people buy the silver bars for investment. Some people will buy 100, 200 bars and put them away and not touch them for years and years and years only to find out maybe 20 years down the road that they're fake. So We, uh, we went up to Carteret to the uh, Engelhart uh, company who actually makes the bars in Carteret, New Jersey. And uh, showed them the bars, and they were they were impressed. I mean, they 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 weighed them, they looked at them, and they really couldn't tell uh, the counterfeit altered bars from the real ones. Uh, they did a good job, you know, altering the bars. Yeah, and you were able to give me a picture of uh, one of those bars cut in half. It's pretty fascinating to see. I'll make sure that I include that with this episode's show notes, so that people can have a chance to to look at that bar and see exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, the uh, the bars uh, were amazing. Uh, how they when we finally cut them open and saw how how they were filled with lead, it was it was it was kind of fascinating. They 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 put a lot of put a lot of effort into it. All right, so he's already indicted and then he learns that you have these tapes of him with him uh discussing melting down the coins with Kurt do you are you able to use that that recording uh to to help you seal a deal with him yes um everybody at that point came in and cooperated cooperated and um we uh, we also had this contract that they had created and um like i said i i sent the contract down to the fbi lab and they were able to determine that some of their story about how the contract was filled out by this Michael Garrett and themselves and the handwriting exemplars and whatnot were inconsistent. And at the bottom of the contract, the mystery person, Michael Garrett, um, was actually a fictitious name that George Funkhauser told us he actually got the M.F. Garrett signature it was actually a tracing of the signature of Pat Garrett, the man who shot Billy the Kid. And George actually got that signature out of a book, uh, I believe called The Signatures of America. It's a book of famous signatures. And also on the Swiss checks, there are several signatures on the Swiss checks. There were also uh, signatures of uh, former congressmen and senators and presidents, I believe, in the United States that he traced off of, out of this book to create these uh, fictitious uh, signatures. And, uh, he really uh, went he out of his that. way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he wanted, he, he wanted to make it more dramatic in his own mind. You know, he was kind of an 
you know, had a pretty big ego and he wanted to do things that he thought were kind of kind of interesting himself. And so uh, what, with all of this evidence against him, were they did they actually sit down uh for a proffer and just kind of spill their guts on everything that they did? Yes. At one point, uh when they proffered with uh, their attorney and Mr. Peruto, uh we asked him who came and picked up the coins at the airport and they initially said this guy named Chris and they gave us a photograph of a guy named Chris. So I said, well, who's Chris? And they said, oh, just a friend of ours. And I said, well, where is he? And George said, well, he died. And, of course, (laughs) we all looked at each other like we couldn't believe that he actually said that. (laughs) You know, as it turns out, we didn't believe yeah right. We, as it turns out, we didn't believe him, and as it turns out, he finally confessed to the fact that his wife and girlfriend came and picked up the coins. Wait, wait, then wait, during wait, the proffer, his wife and girlfriend. Yes, his wife and girlfriend both came to the airport together, the two of them, and picked up the coins and took them back to their home, laid them out on their pool table, and then they went through them. And then George called Kurt and asked him to melt down the gold coins in the gold bars. And did he melt all the coins? Because you also provided a picture with you with some uh, some coins there. So I take it that some of them were were kept. They we were able to recover the rare numismatic coins because they wouldn't melt them down oh, because there right. would be very little gold or silver content in those coins. They're valuable because of their rarity, but they melted down the gold coins because they're value is based strictly on their gold content. If a gold coin has one ounce of gold in it and gold is $1,000, that coin is worth about $1,000. So they melted almost all the gold coins down, but they intended to sell the numismatic coins. And I I take it that is part of the fact that they are truly collectors. I mean, a real collector is not going to destroy these, you know, valuable, um, you know, historically significant coins. Yeah, that's right. They they were both very knowledgeable about the value of coins, uh, bullion coins, and, and rare coins as well, yes. In fact, when I returned to the coin show years later with the stolen coins to return them to the rightful owners, the American Numismatic Association paired me up with a gentleman who has a tremendous reputation in the coin and precious metals industry, and he helped me to return the coins to the rightful owners because it was a little bit confusing. Uh, I know a little bit about coins, but not that much. I had one coin that was worth $20,000 for one coin. And uh, I was trying to distribute the coins to the rightful owners, and this coin expert helped me to do that. And fortunately, uh, it it worked out well. Uh, His reputation was so good that when I distributed the coins back to the dealers, they were very satisfied that they were really their coins and that it was done fairly and, and very efficiently. And uh, but uh, yeah, some of the coins are very, uh, very rare, and grading them and value, valuing them is very complicated. But I had no. help, and uh, so it worked out pretty well. Uh, I returned to the coin show with my with briefcases in my hand, and literally walked up to coin dealers and said, "My name's Doug Hess with the FBI, and this is your lucky day." And returned a lot of the coins to the dealers. Of course, they were thrilled; they never thought they'd get any of their coins back. But there's a coin show every year, usually in Florida, and all the best coin dealers, the biggest coin dealers in the in the world, uh, go there, and uh, it's a great show. Now I know the 
coin collection industry was so pleased with this case that you received a special award. Could you tell us more about that? Uh, yes. Um, I was nominated for an award called the Saul Kaplan Award, which is a, an award given out every five years or so to someone in law enforcement who helps the numismatic industry in a in a criminal case. And um, they offered to fly me out to California for a dinner and to receive this award. And um, I wasn't sure if the Bureau was going to let me go. Uh, in fact, I got teased by some of the more macho agents in the office about going. They didn't think solving a coins case was macho enough for the FBI. We laughed about it. But uh, the uh, ASAC uh, in the Philadelphia office called me in. And she looked at the information, and she looked at me, and she said, Doug, I think this is lovely, and I'm going to approve this trip. And she did. And uh, at that point, I realized that one of the advantages of having a female boss, <laughs> it was really kind of funny, <laughs> but she was great. And she sent me on the trip, and I went out there and had the dinner, and I gave a little speech, and they gave me the award, and it was, it was a great experience. I was really glad that uh, the uh, ASAC in Philadelphia approved the, the, approved the trip. All right. Could you send me uh, a, a photo of the award? I'd love to include that in the show notes, too. Sure, sure. And it's All just right. a small little thing. It's about, you know, maybe, I don't know, five inches by five inches by maybe three inches high. It's a little glass, uh, little glass dome and a plaque. It's kind of nice. Yeah, I still have it. Cool. Very good. During that proffer, he tells you that, uh, you know, that they did keep some of the coins and he admits about uh, you know some of the signatures on the false documents. Is there anything else that you learned from him? Well, the pre-sentence investigators have to know about the subject's money, uh, money coming in, money going out, money he's collecting because he's going to go to jail. And at that point, we discovered that George Funkhauser had a very elaborate health care policy, uh, disability policy, that he actually was paying the premiums on because we believe he knew at some point he would be collecting on this policy. And his finally, when this all came down, uh, he went to several psychiatrists. Uh, most of them turned him away, but he finally found a psychiatrist who would write him up for this disability policy because his disability technically was stress and depression. He would stay up all night, not shave, and go to the psychiatrist's office in the morning. And he told the psychiatrist that he was getting a divorce, which he was, that his mother was driving him crazy, which she was, and that the FBI was accusing him of a crime that he didn't commit, which was not true. And he was collecting $10,000 a month for his business on this disability policy and $4,000 a month personally for this disability of stress and depression <clears throat> where we were able to uh, beef up the uh, sentencing guidelines a little bit because of this. Uh, he actually had the policy, but we went out and interviewed people that he claimed worked for him and several of them said, I had never worked for him or I haven't worked for George and eight years. So he embellished 
the costs of his business in order to collect more money on the disability policy. And the judge was very offended with that and uh, bumped up his uh, sentence uh, another another couple of years. And he ended up getting a, a total sentence of 10 years, no, pr- no, par- no parole, no probation. Uh, Schwartz, I believe, was sentenced to about four years. And the wife and the girlfriend and Mr. Pfeffer all received probation. And one of the other associates named um, Eric Davis was an attorney. He was involved in the Silver Bars case. And uh, he was disbarred and also received uh, a sentence of probation. What was his role in the Silver Bars case? Uh, He was physically actually helping to cut the bars and fill them with lead and resell them. An attorney? Yes, an attorney. And he was disbarred for his involvement. In fact, I learned a lesson. Uh, When I first interviewed Eric Davis, he lied to us. And so I assumed that he was involved in the gold coin scam and later found out he was not at all involved in the coin scam. And I couldn't figure out why he lied to us and later found out the reason why he lied was because he was involved in a whole other crime, the silver bar scam. And uh, so I kind of learned a lesson there. Uh, Well, this case is, is absolutely fascinating. There's so many twists and turns. It would make a good novel. It would make a good movie. But the other thing that's pretty fascinating about this case is that you are a collector, too. Yes, that's right. Tell us about your collections, the things that you collect. Well, when I was uh, all through college, my parents actually had a a little antique business out in Chad's Ford. And so I just started collecting antiques and memorabilia over the years. Uh, I have some FBI and G-Man collectibles that I've collected over the years. I have an autographed FBI story movie poster signed by Jimmy Stewart uh, that I obtained a while back, one of my prized possessions, and uh, some other things uh, uh, I've collected over the years. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I guess my house is sort of like a mini museum. And uh, But I think I got it from my parents. And they were always interested in antiques and collectibles. And uh, so I, it's kind of a hobby with me today, and I, I, I enjoy it. So when I had the chance to investigate this case, it sort of piqued my interest because it did involve something that is somewhat related to what I enjoy. Yeah, and you're being very modest. I mean, your your FBI G-Man collection is you know phenomenal, and uh, you know I want to let the listeners know that you know when the FBI celebrated their 100th anniversary, you allowed me to. Uh, get photos of the items that you collected, your G-Men, FBI uh, toys and collectibles, along with another agent who I'll be talking to, uh, you know, later this month. Um, and you guys allowed me to take photographs and create this special calendar. And so I have all of those pictures. And I, I think what I may do is to update that calendar and uh, provide the file for the listeners, if they want to take it and get that uh, calendar uh, printed, it would make great uh, holiday gifts for, for people. Yeah, some of the uh, items we have are really interesting. Some old uh, cars from the 1930s. Uh, there's a toy machine gun that came out in the 1930s. Uh, some books, a lot of items from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, they're really kind of interesting. Uh, I have an old fingerprint kit, an old G-Man fingerprint set that came out, I believe, in the early 60s. 
a couple of FBI law enforcement bulletins that came out. Uh, I have one here dated December 1935, and uh, some of the stuff's pretty interesting. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Well, um, if it's okay with you, then I think uh, what I may do is then update that calendar, and I'd, I'd love to be able to, uh, you know, let the listeners uh, take a look at some of those photos because I know I, I, I found them just fascinating. Yeah, sure, anytime. I'd be, be glad to do it. Okay, very good. All right, so when did you retire, and what are you doing now? Well, I retired. Uh, I actually had my paperwork all ready to hand in, uh, at one point, and then the World Trade Center was attacked. So I stayed in the Bureau for another year. And uh, actually, my supervisor sent me up to New York after the attack. I was up there for about a month uh, just doing interviews and working on that case. And actually, it was the best time to be in the Bureau because everyone was very cooperative uh, right after the uh, 9-11 attack. Um, I retired in May of 2002, and uh, I have my private investigator's license, and I keep that active. And I do not many jobs, but if something really interests me, like a major theft, um, uh, I'll get involved. And most of the time, I end up talking to people and just talking to them over the phone, giving them some advice and not charging them anything for it. I did go down to Florida, of all places, um, and uh, assist with a major coin theft that occurred uh, um, where a coin dealer was victimized by several people just outside the Peabody Hotel in Orlando, Florida, and um, uh, went down to Florida and did several interviews, but we didn't find out about the theft until about a month afterwards, and so we were not able to recover any of the coins. They were long gone by then. And But I've worked a couple of small theft cases. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, going to the gym. I work out. I volunteer one day a week at a physical therapy rehab hospital in uh, Malvern and uh, play a little golf, a little tennis, spend time with my friends. I'm kind of a movie buff and uh, still tinker around with the antiques a little bit. That's that's about what I do. Okay. Well, if I ask you to kind of sum up your career and and what you think of uh, your career and and the FBI today, um, what would you say? It's probably one of the best things that happened to me and my family. I know my parents were thrilled when I got into the FBI, um, and uh, it's been terrific. Uh, It gave me the chance to work with some great people, yourself included, (laughs) and um, it's just been great. I I really uh, wouldn't change a thing. Uh, It was a great career and uh, worked a lot of great cases, and uh, I feel privileged to have been able to... uh, have that kind of a career. I, I really feel that it's been a, a real blessing. I would recommend it to anyone. If I had a daughter or a son and they wanted to get into the FBI, I would be thrilled. Uh, I think it's a great organization, and uh, I, I really feel like I was uh, privileged to be a part of it. And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, I have photos of Doug, of the gold coins, of the silver bars filled with lead. You definitely want to check those photos out. I also have links to newspaper articles providing a little bit more detail about the investigation and that Saul Kaplan award that Doug received. 
If you enjoyed the interview, I want to encourage you to share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, you'll find all the social media share buttons. I also want to remind you that photos of Doug's collection are a part of the 2017 FBI G-Men collectible calendar that I'm giving away free to members of my FBI retired true crime crime fiction newsletter. And so you can find that on my website, on the homepage, and on the podcast page. I have no crime fiction recommendation for you this week. I'm in the middle of a very, very good novel that I'll talk about next week. So I guess this week, my recommendation is my own novel, Pay to Play, available at amazon.com, an ebook and trade paperback. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.